good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. It is great to see you all here. And uh, you'll need your, your Bibles over to Mark chapter 10 as we look at uh, that chapter this morning. Let's pray. Now, Father God, I pray that as we look at uh, this passage today that you would speak to us. There are some very controversial things here that Jesus says. And yet I pray that our hearts and minds will be open to you, that you would help um, us where Jesus is pushing into areas of our lives that are tender and may hurt, we pray that you would help us still to concentrate on what he says, knowing that he is the God who loves us, who gave up his life for us, and so therefore is on our side. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I talk with people who are Christians, a lot of them say that Jesus was a great teacher. And, uh, and I agree, if you read the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, he's obviously a great teacher. And what I usually ask is, okay, can you name any of his great teachings? And the thing that comes back all the time is, love your neighbour as yourself. And I go, yep, that was exactly one of the main things that Jesus taught. He said, basically, all the law and the prophets hang on two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then I say, have you ever thought about what it is to love your neighbor as yourself? And usually, no, they haven't. Jesus is a great teacher, but his great teachings are very rarely applied because a lot of us haven't really thought about what it is to love our neighbour as ourselves when it comes to various areas of our lives. And today we're doing that. What, what, is, what is it to love our neighbour as ourselves in, in the areas of our lives? Well, what we're going to see is that Jesus, his ethics or the way we should live if we follow him is very radical, very radical. And in fact, it's so radical that we need divine help to do them. And so if you're, you're a follower of Jesus here, what you've got to see is that following Jesus is something that changes every area of your life for the better. But it is hard. And maybe you're a person here who follows Jesus. Well, I want to ask you, in the three areas we're going to look at, how are you going? How are you going? Are you really taking Jesus' words to heart and living in response to them? Well, we're going to see three areas that Jesus is going to apply his kingship on our lives. He's going to say implicitly, if I'm king, this is how you should live. I'm going to give you a radically different view of marriage, a radically different view of money, a radically different view of greatness. And when you think about those three things, you think a radically different view of marriage, a radically different view of money, a radically different view of greatness. They are things that are kind of hard for us to hear. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this week, and um, he said, you know, we, we were just talking about, you know, what you're preaching on, what I'm preaching on. And uh, he, he had a passage, uh, I think in Numbers or something. That, and I was like, okay, that, that's great. I said, well, I, I'm preaching on Mark 10. I'm saying that Jesus has a radically different, gives us a radically different view of marriage, money, and greatness. And he said, two of those things, people don't really like to hear sermons on a lot of the time. 
because they are quite challenging for us. And yet to follow Jesus is to be challenged. And so, so with that in mind, let's have a look at the first point. Let's have a look at Jesus giving us a radically different view of marriage. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into a region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, what we've got to realize is there's background to this. This is, this is the marriage question of the day for a number of reasons. Firstly, there's religious reasons. There were two major rabbis who were really noted back in this day. One guy was named Shammai, and he would say, basically, you can only divorce your wife for immorality. Basically, if she or you had broken the covenant, that's when you can get divorced. There was another rabbi called Hillel, and he was saying, well, no, you can divorce your wife if you find another woman who's better looking, or if she's burnt the, the dinner, literally, you could divorce your wife based on his teachings if she burnt the dinner. And so they're saying, hey, Jesus, Jesus, what do you think? But there's actually another thing that's going on in the background. Remember back to Mark 6. John the Baptist is killed. Why is he killed? Because for a number of reasons. But one of the things that he's killed for is because he's disagreeing with the way Herod uh, has now married his brother's ex-wife. And so he's very vocal about that. And so the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, not only religious grounds, but political grounds. And I dare say what's behind this is they're thinking maybe we could get Jesus killed just like John the Baptist was killed. And so what does Jesus say? Have a look at verse 3. What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, I don't want to get too grammatical, but notice the verbs. Notice the verbs. Verse 3, what did Moses command? This is a command from Moses. They said Moses permitted. Huge difference, isn't there? A command is... You've got to live this way. A permission is like, oh, it's not really good, but I'll allow you to do it. Very big difference. And what does Jesus say? It was because because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus takes them back to to what Moses wrote in the beginning, to Genesis, Genesis 2. And he says, don't you realize that when when a marriage comes together, a man and woman comes together in marriage, it's a new person. God has brought them together and and you shouldn't take them apart. And so that's why Jesus is saying in verse 10 to the disciples, when they were in their house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife 
and marries another woman, commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus goes back to the scriptures when he's in public and he allows the people to make up their own mind of what he's saying, but he's still clear. When he's in private, Jesus is very clear about what he's saying, once again, because of the political background of what's happening. But Jesus is absolutely very, very clear here. Now, there's a couple of things, there's a number of things I need to say here. Jesus in other parts will say a person can get divorced and remarried if there is sexual immorality within the marriage, right? And I take it for the rest of the Bible, if a spouse has decided to act within a marriage to break the marriage covenant, then divorce is permitted, right? But what Jesus is not doing here, he's not trying to give case law and answer every possible situation. He's just going, here's the general principle. Here's the principle. God has brought two people together in marriage. Let nothing separate them. Now, now some of us have been divorced here. I'm sure that if if Jesus is right here having a conversation with you, he would have so much compassion on how hard it has been. I'm sure Jesus would be, would be like that. And I'm sure he would hear you out. And, and whether, whether uh, whatever the issues that led to your divorce, he would be gracious and compassionate to you. But here Jesus is also saying to us who are married, there's a sense in which divorce should not be an option. And yet, there are parts in our lives for some of our marriage marriages where divorce is not only an option, but it seems to be the only option. And so what do you do if you look back on your life and you've got divorce there? Well, you realize that God himself wrote a certificate of divorce to Israel in the Old Testament. He was the husband to Israel, and Israel went off to many other gods, and in the end, he says, I've had enough. If you want to run away from me, I'm going to let you run away. So God knows what it's like to have the relationship between him and his wife, Israel, destroyed. He knows what you've gone through. And one of the things I don't want to do is rub salt into your wounds this morning. And so one of the things, if you've been divorced, I pray that you pray for the marriages in this church because you of all people know how much hard work and how much pain can go into a marriage and a divorce. And I would love to chat with you if you need to. But notice what the problem is here. Verse 5, have a look at it with me again. It was, because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. 
Now, if you read that and you put it in some historical context, it's weird, because Moses wrote uh, at least more than a thousand years before Jesus, and he's saying Moses wrote, "You guys, this law is." Did Moses think of the people in Jesus' day? No, Moses wrote for all Israel. Jesus is talking to Israelites here. And he's saying the hard-hardness of Israel back then is still the hard-hardness of Israel today. But I think he's saying something also deeper. He is saying that Moses wrote the law of divorce because the problem with marriages is hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness where I consider everything that I do right and I think everything that you have done is wrong. When, I, when I've uh, counselled uh, people who are in struggling marriages, the biggest issue is hard-heartedness. The biggest issue is hard-heartedness, and once again, the hard-heartedness that I see is I'm right in everything, but the problem is my spouse. That happens all the time. And can I say, when my marriage is not in a good place, and, you know, every marriage goes up and down, but when I speak to my friends and I just go, oh, you know, my marriage is tough. Uh, it, it's in a really hard spot. And I, and I say, hey, you know, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. I've got a friend, Arnaldo, who, who, who's a really good friend of mine, who, I, who we talk deeply about these things. And uh, I, I was saying, oh, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And he, and he said to me, hands... What sin have you brought to the table in your marriage? And I said, well, well, there's this bit over here, but I don't go, no, no, you cannot change your spouse. You can change yourself. Focus on yourself. And then he said words that I'll never forget, but he's absolutely right. He said to me, Hans, the biggest threat to your marriage is you. The biggest threat to your marriage is you. And if you don't deal with your own sin, you are actually putting your marriage in jeopardy. So love Kate to the best of your ability and hate your own sin and deal with it. He said, right now, hands, what you're doing is loving yourself and you're hating your own sin. Jesus said, love your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your own sin. Some of us here are in marriages where there are issues. Can I just say, one of the things that we've got to do is not only look at what sin we bring to the table and love the other, but if there is trouble, whether it's small or big, this is why we're part of a church. This is why we're in Christian community, so we can talk to each other and say, actually, I really need help because our marriage is in a hard spot. And guess what? If the person you go to are honest, they'll be honest and they'll say, I've been there, we've been there because marriages go up and down. But we've got to pray that we would have hearts that are soft and not hard. I have never met someone who's gone through a divorce who didn't go through significant pain. And what's interesting about this passage is in verses 13 to 15, Mark puts in a a little section about children. 
And notice how there's no connecting words. You know, if what Mark wants to usually do, if, if historically two stories happen in the same day, he'll say, then. You know, then Jesus had a bunch of kids come up to him. Then someone said this, but there's not that. People were bringing little children to Jesus. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is very, very kind. He's very open to, to children. And yet, a lot of the time, divorce is not kind to children. And so one of the, one of the things that we want to do, we want to work on our marriage, yes, for ourselves, for our spouse, but for also our children. And so I just want to ask you, how are you going at loving your spouse? How are you going at judging your own heart and dealing with the mess in your own heart and being gracious and forgiving to your spouse? Or do you have, verse 5, a hard heart? The, The reason why we can have a soft heart is because Jesus has died for us. He he has sent his spirit into our lives so to replace our hard-heartedness with a heart of flesh. Only when we can see how much we've offended Jesus and he forgives us can we love and forgive our, our spouse. Only when we can see how much Jesus has served us can we serve our spouse. Jesus presents the ultimate model of what a spouse is as he loves the church so much that he dies for her. Very radical view of marriage. But there's also a radical view of money. Have a look at verse 17 with me. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a great question. I want to go to heaven when I die. Well, what have I got to do? Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus is saying, you've got great knowledge. You, you You know what you've got to do. Just go and do it. And here's what he says. Verse 20, teach, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. He's saying, I, I, I've done this perfectly. So, so not only is there a good question, he's got great knowledge, but also he's a great life. And yet what does Jesus say? Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's really significant. Because he's gonna, Jesus is going to say something really, really hard to him. When Jesus says something hard to us, he's doing it out of love. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Why does Jesus say this? Is Jesus saying, if you've got a lot of money, well, here's what you should do. You should go and sell everything, give it to the poor, and just follow Jesus. I don't think he's trying to say that. He, he sees into the heart of this man, and he sees there's a war in his heart between two gods. There's the God of the Bible, and then there's money. And right now, this man is, is bowing to the altar of mammon. He, he's all about money. He, he, in fact, Mark defines him, as what? Not by his name, but as a rich young man. Right? He is very, very rich. 
And so here's the thing. Jesus is saying, go and get rid of your other God and follow me. And follow me. But, but notice what, what happens. Verse 22. At this, man, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He was very rich. And he chose money over Jesus. He chose money over Jesus. He, but remember his first question. He wanted eternal life. He's chosen money over eternal life. Over eternal life. And that reminds me of a story that in 1845 there was an expedition to Greenland, to the Arctic, called the Franklin Expedition. This is quite a famous expedition. And it was famous because it was sponsored, it had a lot of money behind it, and, and the, the, they brought all this stuff with them. On the ship they had some beautiful things. They had a, a library there. They had the best wine and alcohol they had uh, little embroidered, you know, suits and everything. They had, they spared no expense. This is a, a luxury thing. They had china place settings, cut glass wine goblets, and s sterling silver flatware. They had all this instead of coal for their steam engines. And it went really bad, and they got lost. And they walked off the ship trying to find humans. And they all died. And then when they were found, they saw dead men clutching their silverware. Dead men who decided to go out into the frigid uh, Arctic, not with proper clothes on, but with their suit, which had their name embossed on it. They saw men who were clutching very expensive alcohol. It was really interesting that there you saw what was really important for these men. They valued silverware, alcohol, all this kind of stuff over their life. Here's this man who is saying, I value my riches over eternity. He, he's, he's doing the same thing. And, and can, I, can I just say, can I just say for a second, this should terrify all of us because we're all rich here. We are all ridiculously rich. Uh, and so here's the thing. When, when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, even if we're just on the dole, even if we're getting money from Centrelink, we are ridiculously rich compared to the rest of the world. And so we cannot think that, oh, I'm sitting next to a rich person because they earn more than me because they, they have this job. No, 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 no. If you've got a job in Australia, you're ridiculously rich as the world, uh, on the level of the world. And so we can't say there's a rich person next to me. I'm the rich person, so I need to hear this. Verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
Can you hear that? You and I are rich, and Jesus is saying it's extremely hard for us who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's ridiculously, it's almost impossible. And Jesus uses an analogy. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now, I'm not sure if you've seen a camel, but the camels I've seen that are huge, you've seen an eye of a needle, they can't go through. Now, here's the thing. There's people who will, who will go and say, well, Jesus is not saying that. He's saying there, there, there was a, a gate around Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And if there was a camel that was loaded up, it couldn't get through this small gate called the eye of the needle. But if the camel took off all its stuff and kind of huddled down and got through, you know, it could. So Jesus is saying, you know, like Jesus is not saying it's impossible. Or the word for camel in Aramaic that Jesus spoke is very, very, uh, very close to saying a thread. And if you twist the thread right, you can, you can put it through the eye of a needle. So Jesus has kind of got to play on words. Can I just say, both of those arguments are ridiculous. I know the archaeology of Jerusalem. I've studied it. There was never, ever a gate called the eye of the needle. And the word for, Ara- you know, the word for camel and thread in Aramaic, they're very different. I'll tell you why those kind of arguments come up. Those arguments come up because we're rich and we want to get out from what Jesus is really saying. Jesus is saying, if you are rich, when you think about the kingdom of God, it's actually, you've got to realize how impossible it is for you to enter the kingdom of God. And here's why. Here's why. I think when we're rich, we don't realize, well, when we're rich, we've got a great life. Uh, and so we can basically do anything with our money that we want. We can have a really, really great life. So we, we don't really have to look forward to heaven because we've got a great life now. But it's those people who really suffer who go, man, I'm looking forward to heaven. Give me Jesus. Uh, I, I uh, watch a fair bit of stand-up com- comedy because, you know, just unwinding that kind of thing. And I, I saw a stand-up comedian. I forget his... Um, forget his name, and I'm going to do totally injustice to his joke, Uh, but he was talking about how atheism is is really a white man's thing. He said, in America, you you don't see many black people who are atheists. You see some, but mostly it's white, white people. And he said, atheism is the ultimate form of white privilege. He goes, because a preacher goes up, and he calls himself an agnostic himself, but he said, a preacher goes up to a white person and says, oh, do you want to believe in Jesus? And the white person goes, no, 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 I don't. And he goes, no, no, you should believe in Jesus. Why should, you believe, why should I believe in Jesus? He goes, because you go to heaven when you die. And he goes, no, I'll pass on that. Because how much better can heaven be than my life right now? Can you see the logic in his joke? And obviously, when he did it, it was funny, right? Can you see the logic? See, when we're really rich, we love our life so much that when we think about the kingdom of God, we just go, well, I've, I've got my kingdom right now. 
And yet Jesus is saying, and he goes on over and over again, and Jesus talks about money more than anything else. And he is saying the thing that is going to keep you out of the kingdom of God more than anything is your wealth. So your bank balance is a threat to your eternity, is what Jesus is saying. So what should you do? Well, you should realize that anything is possible with God. Have a look at verse 27. After the disciples say, who then can be saved? Because they're not going, well, Jesus, I'm not rich. No, they're going, I'm rich. I'm really terrified right now. And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. All things are possible because Jesus died to save you from your idolatry of money and me from my idolatry of money. Jesus gives you a new heart through his death and resurrection so that you would love him more than money. Jesus gives you a new mind so you can see that your eternity is worth more than your bank balance. That's why all things are possible with God because God does the impossible. You cannot change your heart or your eternity, but God can. And therefore, when you see that what God has done for you, you, you begin to love God more than your money. And therefore, you're able to do what this man cannot do and worship God with your money. I'm, I'm not saying that, that to worship God with your money, you've got to give it all away. I'm just saying be generous. See, no, notice what the disciples did. Have a look at verse 28. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one, who, uh, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying here? I think what Jesus is saying is if you give up everything to follow me, you, get, you become part of a community. You become part of a, a, a community where you have brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Yes, you'll have persecutions, but you'll have all that. You'll have a new home, and that's the church. When it says, and in the age come eternal life, that's kind of like the ultimate thing. If, if you leave everything and follow Jesus, well, you'll get eternal life. But what does it mean for us to leave everything and follow him? Does it mean, hey, what we've got to do is, is put our house on realestate.com and, and sell it and just follow Jesus? No, I think he's saying you've got to so radically live your life so that what you have is you realize it's all God's, it's not yours. You're giving up everything to him. You're saying to Jesus over and over again, what do you want me to do with my money, my time, my everything? How can you do that? When you realize that Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor and died on the cross, so on a spiritual sense, you could be a billionaire. When you get that on a heart level, you'll see your money is just there. So it's there to just worship Jesus with. How are you going at worshiping Jesus with your money? Jesus got a radical view of money, but finally he's got a radical view of greatness and we'll be quick. Jesus in verses 32 to 34, he predicts his death. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem and die. And what do the disciples do? Well, once again, they have this, uh, this thing about who's greatest. Have a look, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, said, excuse me, came to him. They said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other on your left in glory. Jesus says, no, they say to Jesus, hey, we want the, the ultimate positions. When, you, when you're in heaven, when you're sitting on your throne, we want positions right to the, right, uh, to the left of you. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus just talked about him dying on the cross. And he's saying, can you do that? Can you walk this this road that that I am? And, And they are so dumb. Verse 39, oh, we can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. He's saying, you will die for me. And I can just imagine that, that James and John are high-fiving each other. Yeah, we've got it, right? Because they don't get what Jesus is saying. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Why did they become angry? I think it's because James and John beat them to it. Because they've actually argued before who's the greatest. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. He's saying, if you want to follow me, you, you don't lord it over everyone else. You serve people. I'm watching a TV show with Kate at the moment called Suits. I'm not sure if you're watching Suits, but it's, it's a, an amazingly uh, fun show to watch, but all the characters are really terrible in it, pretty much. And it's interesting how much, how little service is actually happening. It's all about, hey, you do this for me, I'm going to work things through, so I win, all this kind of stuff. And it's thrilling. And Jesus says it's absolutely the opposite of how we should live. Verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, I came to serve, you do the same. You do the same. You want to be great? Be a great servant. First place that you can start to serve I think from this passage, is your marriage, if you're married, if you've got the privilege of being married. If you're single, look at who you can serve around you. At work, the, the people that answer you, how are you going at serving them? How many times a, a week do you ask them, is there anything I can do for you? What can I do for you? How are you going at serving I remember a friend of mine told me he went over to England. He was, he was chasing all these kind of theologians. He wanted to meet them. And he met one of them named I.H. Marshall. And I.H. Marshall, he found out for 40-odd years, he's one of the greatest New Testament scholars of his day at that time. And for 40 years, I.H. Marshall served his church by taking a bunch of 12- and 13-year-old boys in a Bible study, and that's what he was doing. He didn't seek glory for himself when he came to church. That's what he did. He served others because he knew Jesus. How's your service of others going? Are you serving Jesus because you know him? 
Jesus was a great teacher, but more than that, he was a great saviour. The problem is, if he is just a great teacher, we will be crushed. Because I I can't love Kate as I should always. I cannot take greed totally out of my heart, even though I fight against it. I I cannot serve perfectly. But Jesus is not just a great teacher, but a great saviour who saves us from those. And when we get that we are saved from our own sin, that's when we want to serve each other in marriage. That's when we want to use our money to serve others. That's when we want to serve and really forget about ourselves because Jesus is great. Are you following Jesus, not only the great teacher, but also the great saviour. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that Jesus was not just a great teacher, but a great saviour. Lord, help us to follow him. Lord, I I pray for those of us here today who things that were said either by Jesus or myself were really hard to hear. I, I, I I just want to pray once again for those dear brothers and sisters in our midst who, for whatever reason, uh, have, have been divorced. Lord, I pray that they would find a community which loves them and serves them here. Help them to see that whatever has happened in their past, Jesus is the one who has given them hope for the future. And so, Lord, I, I do pray for us who are married, that we would serve our spouses, that you would help us not to have hearts of stone but hearts of flesh. Help us to use our money knowing that our true riches are in heaven and help us to seek greatness by serving each other, not serving ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.